recording, Josh? Yes. 5432. Welcome back, everybody, to another titillating episode of the Chromecast. You have me, uh, Luke. Who else is on the mics? I'm Joshua. I'm Jonathan. And the three of us together make a, uh, a three-fisted trio of uh, awesome dudes that are walking down the hard-boiled road. <laughs> We're in uh, – what is this? This is like season 14. Holy it crap. Is. Yeah. Uh, yep, yep. And we're in, we're breaking a half dozen. So we're at episode six. I guess we're getting to a half dozen. We are talking about Chester Himes cotton comes to Harlem tonight. I think this is going to be part one of two. Is that right, guys? Are we talking about halfway through the story? That's the plan. We snap these in half like yep. a Kit Kat. Mm. <laughs> Stand up like a Kit Kat. We're going to talk about the front half of cotton comes to Harlem and set ourselves up for a grand finale to the season. I think we're gonna right. we're gonna be we're gonna be putting a bow on the the hard boiled alley, that dark and dreary place. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what you guys think about this story, but this is man. We're getting we're getting a little bit dark here. We're getting a little sure. bit a little bit mean with the stories. So I'm excited to talk about this. We're gritty. Yeah, unlike the citizens of the hard boiled alley, we get to escape at the end of the season, but. For the rest of them, for the ones that were in the books we read, they're stuck there. They're stuck there. Yeah. Doomed to I feel live like this, the, this the, cycle the, the over peoples, and over. They're not going to be able to hop on a boat. They're not going to be able necessarily to go down south. There's uh, there's little to be done if you're hanging around Harlem within the, the story here. I mean, Gravedigger and uh, Coffin Ed, they're, uh, they're some hard dudes, but geez like the way that they're interacting with their with their their constabulary and their their constituents or whatever the right words are man they they have to straddle a fine line and i don't know i don't know what it would be like to live in a in that kind of world in 1960s harlem yeah dude (laughs) i Uh, love it i love the writing but man it is it's pretty it's pretty terse yeah it is grim and gritty uh, I was looking at this more closely, and there, this is a part of a series of nine novels written by Chester Himes. And um, I'm not sure where this comes into the the series, but I think it's like fairly far along. Like this is not number one. No, I no, think I think, I, I think there's one more after this, right? And then there was like an unfinished bit. Yeah, it's the sixth and best known, if I remember what the Wikipedia says. Okay, I'm looking at the list now. There's one called The Real Cool Killers. That sounds fun. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to look for that one. But anyway, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. It is it is very grim, very gritty, uh, and a, a fitting end for this season. Yeah, of course. I was I was reading, and then I was reading the book, and then, you know, this evening before before the recording did a little bit more homework about the, the overall continuity of things, and I found myself wondering about, like, uh, you know, with with coffin ed and his uh, his short fuse and his temper you know and <laughs> acid in the face and all kinds of crazy stuff that's happening is that stuff that's actually recalled in previous books i have to assume that those are those are stories that have been covered previously in the uh in the overall narrative that himes put together but, but man these two dudes they've seen some stuff yeah they sure have they've walked some hard streets You're damn right 
<laughs> Shut your mouth. This is a uh, this is and it's kind of the start of a lot of a lot of these tropes, right? Like mm-hmm. that's the that's the the real take home message of of what I think we're probably talking about here tonight. Yeah, we'll probably talk more about it as we go. There is a film uh, based on this novel that came out, directed by Ozzy Davis and starring a whole host of really awesome folks. I don't want to miss anybody, so I'm just going to say that it's a whole bunch of them. But uh, it is some in some circles, it seems like it's considered the first true black exploitation film. And right. And there's others that argue Shaft and some others maybe fit that bill a little bit better. But um, I think that there's there's something to be said for maybe this being the start of that that genre. Film wise, at least, I don't know about if I would argue the book is a black exploitation joint. I don't think necessarily the book is, but the, man, I, so I haven't watched that movie, but we were circulating the trailer around, and of course, it feels pretty over the top. I think that's yeah. the, the the kindest way to sort of paint the the mixed signals that you get from those couple minutes of of, of far out. <laughs> yeah, man, trailers used to be crazy. Like the way that trailer is set up is is bonkers to me. Like we, you, I'm used to the trailer is much more of like a, Oh, you know, here's a chunk of the movie. Here's a chunk of the movie that had a guy like, Hey, want to see a movie? This movie is about da-da-da. And then there was like, here's a clip. Uh, these guys do. It was much more, uh, guided than I'm used to. I guess I would say. Did you see the part in the trailer where Gravedigger and coffin Ed, uh, throw this guy, what seems to be <laughs> about 15 or 20 feet into the air. Sure did. Yeah. Sure did. <laughs> Just wondering. I was a big fan of that part. Yeah, that that was my favorite part. <laughs> yeah, it walks a it walks a weird line, man. It does. But uh so before we start talking about the story, uh John, what are you drinking? I myself, I'm gonna have a little glass of wild turkey, uh Russell's Reserve, ten year. I was feeling fancy. That's a Don't mighty celebrate dude. The, end of the season coming on. That's a mighty fine year. Year it ten. Is. Ten years is good. Yeah, I yeah. think that's good bourbon. Oh, it's not from year ten. <laughs> and and Jimmy Russell, he knows how to wrestle my Jimmy's on my taste buds. So big fan. Good word. How about you, Josh? What are you drinking? I've got something new for for me. It's uh High Wire Loves AVL, a traditional stout for Terrence McKenna with Zebulon Artisan Ales. It is uh from it says Three Ring Brewing Company in Asheville, North Carolina, and this was gifted to me back in uh, the summer. Um, I had a, a a big birthday, turned forty this year, and uh, this was this was kind of just chilling in the fridge, waiting for colder temperatures. And it's a it's a good um, a stout, um, high gravity, not not super high. It's a seven point five percent. But uh, uh, I'm, you know, just kind of sipping on this thing, and it's 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 very good, very tasty. I love I love a stout, as you guys know. This You're is very Irish one. in that way. I want to share the rest of this with you guys. I really do. <laughs> Teleport it on over. Yeah, I'll pour it into my <laughs> computer. We nice. need a beer delivery drone. That can be the Chromecast next project. I'm, I'm making a note. <laughs> well, uh, as we were getting started, I had a little hint of a Calumet Farm eight-year bourbon. This was something that John and Josh got me for my birthday. I uh, had a little taste of that. Right now, 
Uh, I've got a little bit of Evan Williams and a high ball. That's what I'm doing currently. And then I've got, I guess, two or three uh, Miller Highlights ready to rock just to kind of kind of bring it down. So that's, that uh, that that's what I got. That Calumet is a mighty fine bourbon. Do what? That Calumet is a mighty fine bourbon, I would argue. It is tasty, man. I like good. it. It's, it's pretty great. Uh, it's 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 uh, It's got all of the right notes. It's... It's not extreme, I would say, in any angle. It's just a really solid, you know, yeah. eight-year bourbon. So, yeah, I uh, I appreciate you guys getting that. That was that was a, a pretty a pretty nice gesture and uh, and much love for uh, for a good bottle of bourbon. We love you, buddy. Hey, man. Yeah, this is this podcast is full of love. So, f you, toxic masculinity. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about feelings, and then now we're going to talk about one thing. John, do you have a led, one thing for us? I led the liquor, so I presume, yeah, I'm going to do the first one thing. I do. It's going to you. I uh, I recently had some nasal surgery, so I had the opportunity to sit in a chair and uh, read a whole bunch. I had this like thing on my nose that would keep the blood inside of it so that I, I wouldn't leak on the pages. And I was trying to mow through a lot of comics, and I sat down and read some Dark Horse collections that I've been aiming to read for quite some time. And I finally had my schedule open up. I've been really into the Avatar, the last airbender universe since I watched the original cartoon about a year ago, discovered that sort of in the midst of the or the middle half of the quarantine, I guess, or the or pandemic. And I watched all that. I watched the sequel, The Legend of Korra, which is also really great. Uh, I highly recommend both of them if nobody has seen them on Netflix. But Dark Horse had the publishing license for the comics. I think they still do. Uh, I don't think it's one of the ones that they've lost, but they've done several collected editions and I had stacked them all up sort of in a hunt over the interceding months. And so there's Avatar, The Promise, The Search, The Rift, Smoke and Shadow, North and South, Imbalance, and The Lost Adventures, and then The Legend of Korra, Turf Wars, and Return of the Empire. So uh, the Avatar ones all sort of take place at the end of the war that is the sort of just of that show and the gist of that show, I should say, uh, there's like a furthering of the gang's adventures and sort of what they're doing into in this next stage of their life. All very well written. Gene Luing Yang uh, was one of the main writers for most of them. And I highly recommend all those. The legend of Korra ones though, were my favorite. Uh, I think that show is heavier and darker and it focuses uh, in the second half of it on the rise of fascism in this universe. And it has some, I don't know, it was very poignant at the time that I was watching it, I guess is the way I'll put it. And then this comic series sort of shows the aftermath of defeating fascism and what that means for a society. So I highly recommend them. If you haven't found them, they're reprinting them in omnibus form, uh, paperback omnibus form here over the next several months. As part of a big avatar push, uh, the hardcovers are getting cheaper because of that. So all of these are getting easier to find, and I hope folks will check them out. That leads us to Joshua. Hey, I've been watching a show 
from uh, the uh, tail end of the 1990s called Freaks and Geeks that was loaned to us by uh, Chromecast Kara, <laughs> Wine and Witches Kara. One of the Wine and Witches characters. Yep. She loaned it to us last year about this time, um, and it sat on our shelf on top of our Blu-ray player just kind of sitting there waiting, and we finally, I think, are in the uh, the right mood and frame of mind for it and it is um hilarious and poignant and awkward and just like all the all the things that you could you could feel for a show about high schoolers that that has the cast that it has so James Franco, Seth Rogen, Jason Segel um and and those those folks along with uh Linda Cardellini who is the the lead actress of the show and uh it's wonderful i love it it's very that show is great man kara and i are big fans uh we loved it when we watched it the first go around there's still some quotes from it that float around our house every now and then my favorite is probably uh, i don't know if you've gotten to it yet but i hope when you do hear it that you'll remember me uh one of the characters says i'm not a little girl i'm a biotic woman <laughs> <laughs> nice. one of my favorites nice so, let me know when you get to that part. So far, the dad is cracking me up the most, saying things like, yeah. uh, "You know, you know who else cut classes? Jimi Hendrix. You know what happened to him? He died." Harold <laughs> <laughs> Muir is a is a mood. He's definitely a mood. Yeah. So, freaks and geeks. Uh, I haven't seen it anywhere to stream, so I'm glad that we were loaned these uh, these DVDs and we're uh, we're enjoying them. So that leads us to Luke. Nice, man. Uh, so I guess my one thing, I'm going to choose an author that I've just started tipping my toes into. Uh, my one thing is going to be Beat Up Paperbacks by Tanith Lee. Uh, I just recently got a hold of a couple of her paperbacks, one of which I just started is called Companions on the Road, which is a collection of two of her novellas. Uh, and I just started reading that and I'm digging it so far. Uh, but I also was able to pick up a copy of her first, uh, first book called the birth grave, which is, uh, the first in a series. And between that and some of her other sequential works, like she's, she's just one of those big presence, uh, types of folks that are within the, the sword and sorcery adjacent in, and uh, sort of mystical genre that, that it's, it's not straight up sword and sorcery, but it's the kind of thing that allies itself. And I'm excited to be reading it. So Kenneth Lee is the, the one thing that I'm getting into her. I've only read a few of her stories, but she strikes me as someone who kind of occupies the same Venn diagram space as C.L. Moore. What do you think about that statement? I think that there's some truth to that. Of course, they're both, they're both women. So I think that there's, uh, an angle there. That's probably the, the recurrent thing that gets talked about with, 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 uh, with their works. But, you know, I, like Tanith Lee is just she's 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 mystical. I don't want to necessarily say that she's like uh what's the right word? Like Clark Ashton Smith esque, 
mm-hmm. with how she puts together her stories, but she's got a lot of a lot of flavor that's sort of boiled into that. And there's a lot of there's a lot of emotion in the writing. And so and I haven't read a lot. I've just read some of her short stories. So I'm just now getting into her longer form stuff and I'm excited to really delve into it over the winter months. Uh, and I just I just happened to find copies of this one uh, paperback, which is a collection of two different novellas and then also the Birthgrave uh, book, which is the first of like a three or I guess it's probably three, a three book series uh, to, to be reading. Like I have a handful of her science fiction book club like Omniboo, but I don't want to get into those outright. I want to read some shorter stuff uh, to get started. I guess, I guess what I, the other things that I have is the, the tales from the flat earth. Well, that's the, that's the longer form stuff. That's like loads of novels and they all kind of string together, but I want to read some of her sort of mid length stuff to get, to get primed up for that. Yeah. The, the Gorgon is the story that I've, that yep. I've read that stuck out most in my mind. She's, she's awesome, man. So I'm excited to read, to read her a bit more intensively beyond just the, the short stories that I've in, encountered in some anthologies. So sweet. So she's my one thing. We've got a varied mix of stuff here. I love it. We've got a, a mix of, uh, books and, uh, old, older DVDs. If you can round them up or, uh, reruns of, of a thing you can uh, find some various back issues. You can put them all together and you call them. One thing. You guys want to talk about some uh, some cotton coming to Harlem? I do. I do. I do. Pumped. Definitely. This Who is wants a... to, to give the quick elevator pitch of what goes down, at least in the front half of this novel? Okay, sure. I can, I can try and, and then I'll let John fill in the holes. Um, this book was published in 1965 and I think it's also set about that same time. And there is a big back to Africa rally run by this, this reverend who's charging folks, what a thousand dollars for a ticket on this boat that's going to Africa and some land there so they can start fresh and get, get out of the, the, the racist um, areas of the U S get back to back to Africa. And it turns out he's a shyster and he's going to take their money. And before he gets a chance to some other folks roll in and they take the money and they roll it up in a big bag of, or a big bale of cotton. Um, And they make off with the money. um, And the cotton bale has been lost and we're not sure where, well, I guess we know where the cotton bale is, but like we have some some perfect knowledge that the other characters don't necessarily have, right? Right. Um, but so we know that the the bale is with this uh, uh, homeless guy named Bud, I think, and uh, we meet Gravedigger Jones and Coffin Ed, who are on the case investigating who took the money, who this uh, this this uh, preacher man is, who's uh, leading this charge for this back to Africa rally. And they are coming in, uh, thumping heads and taking names. <laughs> That's a good description, man. Fill, fill in the gaps. I, I think that you hit all the gaps. I mean, this is it's it's a very hard boiled story. 
Uh, it starts out with a lot of desperate people trying to do a desperate thing, I think, and a man taking advantage of them. And then I guess our two protagonists or what are presented as our protagonists are, they're just fired up, man. They're, they're really upset about people getting swindled. And it's not necessarily that they think of them less because it seems like on a, on a gut level, they really understand what's going through their head. And this will be something that I think we'll dive more into, but just that, that desperation, that desire to get out of the hard boiled thing. We made the joke at the beginning about we get to leave the hard boiled alley behind, but all of the citizens of our various stories, they don't get that luxury. And I think that that's the thing with Gravedigger and Coffin is that, I mean, just think of their names. It's, there's a finality to the life of all these people in this story uh, that was very, I think, baked in to people's attitudes at the time. So uh, we'll talk, I think, more about that. I was excited to get to this story for the season. I chose it because I thought it was an interesting sort of later hard-boiled novel compared to what we've already done for the season. We started with some of the progenitor, uh, progenitors of the, of the genre, and we've kind of moved into somebody that came on uh, a little longer down the line. And I think somebody that does a lot with the hard-boiled genre and transports it to a place that is different and new for us. And I was sort of turned on to this book by the Luke Cage Netflix series. I don't know if you all remember that there were lots of books that he would read throughout that. And I remember finding a list of some of the books that are talked about and then the ones that he reads directly on screen. And Chester Himes was just an author, I think, that gets mentioned in a debate they're having in the barbershop about who some of the greatest black hard-boiled writers were. And I looked him up, and I, I read about this book, and I saw the title. And I was like, oh, this must be about a detective that they call Cotton or something. Uh, the story is very different, obviously, from what I had originally envisioned. But it seemed like a perfect fit for the hard-boiled alley. Yeah, I'm glad you picked it, man. This is this is a good way. I think this is a good um, uh, capstone for the, the season in a lot of ways. I mean, we could go on and on and on with this this subgenre, and maybe we'll come back to it. But yeah. maybe someday. Yeah, maybe someday. What's What's striking to me is just how uh, not over the top, but just hard edged all of the writing becomes. And I've I've read some Jim Thompson uh, type stuff, and it gets it gets pretty it gets pretty mean in in his writing too. And I I actually haven't read. Uh, too much about how much those two dudes overlapped with their writing, him and Himes, but that that sort of mean streak that you get within this Himes novel is kind of reminiscent. I guess it, it, it kind of starts to fall into – it's not necessarily neo-noir at this point in time, but almost uh, like taking the genre up to another level in terms of its its seriousness. Like everything that's talked about in Cotton Comes to Harlem is it's uh, hard boiled conventions and a story, but there's the extra complications of race that are overlaid on it. And, you know, this this story <laughs> by far has some of the most tersely worded uh, prose that we've that we've read thus far, like of all of our stories. I mean there are expletives and uh, you know all kinds of uh, hard hard words being thrown around left and right, and I think it's I think it's handled pretty 
in a pretty deft fashion. I don't know. Like Himes is somebody that I'm kind of, I'm excited to see how this story wraps up, but I'm also kind of interested to know how he wrote otherwise, because this story is just mean, like the way that he talks about different races of people, the way he talks about uh, men versus women, black versus white. There's a lot of distinctions here in his ability to really sort of like use his prose as a knife. I dig that. Yeah. And it's not, a, it's not a surgical blade either. Is it like it's, it's cutting, <laughs> cutting through. He, he saves a lot of words by using that, that verbiage like a knife, like you said, to, to sort of get at the heart, <laughs> cutting through the, the, the outside of, uh, uh, issues right to the right to the core. Yeah, he's he's not afraid to use, you know, uh, like I guess just to put it simply, like he'll drop the N word as like a contemporary rapper, really to cut to the quick with his intentions, or he will sort of differentiate other races, like he you know he singles out like Puerto Rican uh, peoples within the you know within new york city and within within that area and he distinguishes sort of like latin communities versus black communities very quickly very very coarsely and there's this underlying feeling of just racism that permeates all of the writing sort of in both ways right and i don't want to necessarily uh like sugarcoat any of the racism in the book it is uh, dealing with the racial issues of New York City and our country, mm-hmm. you know, because we're all we're all <laughs> we're all from the United States on this on this show. Like it's dealing with all of that uh, as a two way street. I lo- and I really do like that. I like also that these two dudes, the two cops. Uh, they are they're black cops, mm-hmm. and they're they're put in a place where they're policing their black community but interacting with like the the larger white police force and that puts them in the squeeze i think that's the most interesting part to me is really how they sort of juggle that kind of business and how they kind of police themselves because there's one of the two that's a bit more uh like hot around the collar or or quicker to, to quicker to respond to things and and that dude he flies off the handle a little bit a little bit yeah I've I've got a section of of the the book. This is on page thirty five of my vintage crime copy of Cotton Comes to Harlem, um, and Gravedigger and Coffin Ed. They're in this bar. They're they're drinking. They're making observations about the world around them. Uh, and Gravedigger says, "All I wish is that I was God for one, one mother raped in second. Gravedigger said, his voice cotton dry with rage. "I know," Cotton uh, Coffin Ed said. You'd concrete the face of the mother rape and earth and turn white folks into hogs. But I ain't God, Gravedigger said, pushing into the bar. The bar stools were filled with drunken relics, shabby men, ancient whores draped over tired laborers, drinking ruckus juice to get their courage up. The tables were filled with the already drunk sleeping on folded, folded arms. Like it sets the stage, it sets the mood. Uh, you know a lot about where Coffin Ed um, and Gravedigger Jones are coming from. 
um, there's a lot to it there. And, and it's just a good example of that knife point just slicing through the issue and telling you, informing you like what the setting is, what the attitude is, what, what the prevailing sort of feeling is. Hey, you know, the first, the first, uh, probably like 10th of the book, something like that, like a pretty, a pretty short number of pages, but the first like 20 or 30 pages, there's a fair amount of, uh, grave digger and, and coffin, like, interacting with the the white police and that's i think instrumental for setting the stage but really for me like like stuff really picks up and i start started to get really into the story once those two dudes kind of went on on the hunt when they were sort of operating within their like within harlem and kind of within their community and they they're not necessarily given free reign, but they're given a bit of uh, allowance to to do what they need to do. Like they take the law into their own hands, and they're kind of working on the peripheries of things with the ways that they are able to call in and consult with various informants, like CIs, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, that that's yeah. actually my favorite bit. Like the way that they're talking to their various informants, kind of in the front half of the book. I love seeing them. It's just, uh, it's cool to see how they pull stuff in. I think that the part that you're talking about is also sort of, it coincides with Harlem becoming the next character in the book, um, becoming more of a full fledged place because the early stuff is very, uh, caperific. Like it's just talking about the stuff that happened. It's, it's plot, you know, but then all of a sudden you're in this concrete, hellhole that they're i mean they seem to think of it like that at least of of drunks and stumble bums and winos and and hookers and all kinds of stuff on the street uh they they have a real anger problem with hoodlums uh they're very upset with people behaving the way that they do it seems like um they've got a lot of pent-up aggression it seems like and i they're they're dual aspects, perhaps even of Chester Hines. I know that we've talked about the author a little bit, but he, I, he had a lot to say about sociology in the U S and sort of the, the racial problems that were in this country. And we've alluded to that before. It's making the hard boiled, even more hard boiled, uh, just to like really dive into crime. And then this, this American racism kind of layered on top of it. It, I, I just feel like he had so much aggression and even he, I think there was a quote on the Wikipedia page that I remember reading. Uh, it was him saying about uh, when he moved to Los Angeles and was dealing with things out there. And this was, I think right before he wrote this book, I uh, said up to the age of 31, I'd been hurt emotionally, spiritually and physically as much as 31 years can bear. I'd lived in the South. I'd fallen down an elevator shaft. I'd been kicked out of college I'd served seven and one half years in prison. I'd survived the humiliating last five years of depression in Cleveland. And still I was entire, complete, functional. My mind was sharp. My reflexes were good. And I was not bitter. But under the mental corrosion of race prejudice in Los Angeles, I became bitter and saturated with hate. And I honestly think that some of that's in here, man. Like that bitterness, that rage, that hate it comes out in a lot of ways with Gravedigger and Coffin. They... They have a lot of hate in their heart. Oh yeah, they they are 
they're not angry young men. They are angry and bitter to old. They're not old, but they're, they're, I think the stage that I think the three of us can kind of relate to middle of the road, pissed off and just sullen, right? Like it's, there's a, there's that angle of you've seen the story play out long enough. You know, you're fighting a, uh, relentless sort of fruitless fight in a lot of ways. And you're, you're choosing to fight on, but the Holy hell, it just makes you that much more bitter. Page 26. They were silent for a moment with the rain pouring over them, thinking of these 87 families who had put down their thousand dollar grub stakes on a dream. They knew that these families had come by their money the hard way to many. It represented the savings of a lifetime to most. It represented long hours of hard work at menial jobs. None could afford to lose it. They didn't consider these victims as squares or suckers. They understood them. These people were seeking a home, just the same as the Pilgrim Fathers. Harlem is a city of the homeless. These people had deserted the South because it could never be considered their home. Many had been sent north by the white Southerners in revenge for the desegregation ruling. Others had fled, thinking the North was better, but they had not found a home in the North. They had not found a home in America. So they looked across the sea to Africa, where other black people had both uh, were both the ruled and the rulers. Yeah, man, that also is a, a passage that stuck with me. Uh, it seems like this really good distillation of I, the black experience in the United States. This idea of they didn't come here willingly. They have things ripped away from them at every turn. They're pushed around a lot. And then anytime that they get, there's another one. I think it's something like the starry eyed people of the neighborhood had looked back towards Africa. Like they, they, they were dreaming, they were hoping, and now it's all getting ripped away from them again. And coffin and, and Gravedigger they can't handle that very well, or they don't like it at least. And they want to do something about it. And they, they're not superheroes. They don't want to fix the system, but I think they feel like if they can do this one thing, it's it's a slap in the face of the prejudice that they have to face every day. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. I mean, the the concept of the Great Migration, like there's basically peoples from one side of a continent that move to the other side of the continent because of because of racism, right? Like that's the ultimate driver of folks from the south moving up to the north. And that's kind of where this story starts is there's these various uh, African-American people that are in Harlem that are living there and they want to get back onto Africa. And there's this whole back to Africa movement that's an actual historical thing that maybe we can talk about uh, that is – I don't want to say it's just a a popcorn party and something that's ultimately never going to happen. But I think – the, the actual historical uh, touchstones say that that was, uh, <laughs> you know, better on paper than in reality, the way that that ultimately played out. Yeah. That's one option that they have. And the other option, and, and they buy into that and their money's taken away. And there's this, this whole group of people that lose nearly $100,000 uh, because of that. And then there's this other emergent thing, and I don't know how the hell this is going to play out, because at this point in the story, I'm just wondering 
what is this back to the south angle, which is this weird reverse migration story <laughs> that seems to be being sold within the story. But there's this extra layer of almost like alternative history of you're not happy up north. Come back to the south. Remember, we've got like sorghum and uh, Jeez, really, 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 really tasty like sausage and, and, and hoe cakes. Like that's the thing that plays out. So I guess to circle back around, what do you guys think about the kernel as like this this example of maybe like the, the, the uber evil like sitting in the diner eating this – this delicious uh, southern breakfast, <laughs> sipping bourbon highballs while there's people protesting out in the streets. How how crazy is that? It's crazy. It's it's the excess. He pers- personifies excess, man, and he's kind of a reverse carpetbagger. Like he's he's <laughs> selling the these notions of you know come on come on back to the south it's it's where you it's where you should be anyway and we'll give you we'll give you jobs back on the back on the plantations like holy crap are you kidding me um it it blows my mind that these types of tropes or or not really tropes i guess these types of uh plot elements are used in the story from the bale of cotton that that houses the the money Right, right, right. And and then this this you know boss hog kind of figure that is is selling these folks on their, um, you know, come on back to the south, and uh, this the back to Africa movement, which I don't I admit I don't know a lot about, but in my brief research, it seems like there is, um, there there's a lot of. Uh, white supremacy involved in back to Africa, right? Like, you know, we don't want you here. Get out of here. I don't know how much, how, how many different back to Africa movements there were that were actually started by um, people of African descent. And so that sticks out to me also as this weird sort of inversion of, um, of, of a, an object or a movement that, represents racism and oppression it's crazy to me it is crazy i think that what we're talking about and kind of hitting on here is i mean if we're talking about black people in the united states you're talking about people who were ripped from their actual native homeland of africa and brought here against their will but then once they're here and sort of stripped of their heritage the south by default becomes a sort of homeland to the black community, to the African-American community. And so there's these two twin destinies or twin pasts that are calling to these folks of, you know, go home to your real home where you would have been if it weren't for the transatlantic slave trade and white people and capitalism. And then also we don't really fit in there. We haven't been there for hundreds of years as a group and I don't know that we would actually succeed there. Like we don't know anything about our actual culture. We don't know where we come from. And then the South is where they came from. A lot of these folks, that's what they know. They know sorghum, molasses. They know grits. They know that life. But that life sucked. Uh, it, any chance at a piece of the American dream was ripped from them. So are they going to make their own dream and go back home? Would they be accepted there? Or would they be pariahs there? I mean there's there's a lot of – Doubt. There's no certainty for these folks, it seems like, at the time. 
and yeah, the back to Africa movements are always fraught. I mean, you can look at uh, the American Colonization Society, which helped to found Liberia, and it was sort of this idea like, oh, we should at the end of the Civil War try to get everybody back home because what are the, what are these freed slaves going to do here? And then Marcus Garvey and the further back to Africa movement. Again, we're not experts on any of these things, so I don't want to speak authoritatively, but also fraught, perhaps funded by people that didn't have the best intentions at heart at different turns. And it's just playing out all over again. These folks that are in the story that Gravedigger and Coffin want to protect, I mean, what what did they have? Like, what can they grab a hold of? Where are they going to go? Where should they live? They went north because the people down south didn't want them and supposedly the north was better. And then they found out the northerners don't want them either and stuck them in all these places that they wouldn't rather live. It's just, where do you go? What do you do? Like, what is life? Yeah, so so the term is diaspora, right? Like, there's this is a this is a term that's used for a variety of cultures, but mm-hmm. you're kind of out on the lamb, and you're not uh, maybe not out on the lamb. It's not necessarily the best term, but you're you have been cast out or turned out of your homeland by yeah. not even your own volition. Like you're just out there, and you're kind of just on. On, on the wind you don't you you don't have a place to go and that's what strikes me with like all of the peoples within this this story like all of the folks that that uh coffin ed and gravedigger are interacting with like they're doing what they got to to survive like that that is the the absolute like down to the to the bare bone kind of summary of any badass black exploitation kind of story is like you know, there's no good there's no good people, but they're doing what they got to to get the job done, like just to make ends meet. Like that's that is very that's noir and hard boiled to the bone. Like we've we've talked about that already over this season with a variety of white people. Right. Like like that's the that's the message that comes across. But when you don't have a home and you're just sort of floating around, what do you do? You want to get back somewhere, but you're also sort of just fighting for for every day. Yeah, man, it's like I said, I think I said something before about it's hard boiled on top of hard boiled this, this added layer of race. So we hope we're doing it justice. Uh, we, and, we I are mean, cognizant of, <laughs> of who we are. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's hard. This is a hard topic to, to tackle. It's, it, there's the book is fairly short form. I mean, we've we're only talking about seventy-five or eighty pages here, mm. like in the in the the printed page that we're dealing with here. But it's it's jam-packed with stuff, and uh, it's cool to sort of think about it in terms of. Well, what am I trying to say, John? Like earlier, whenever you were talking about Chester Himes, like you gave a quote about him. He referred to like Los Angeles as like a. Uh, as almost a character as an influencer on him over the course of his life. And the way that we see Harlem as an influencer over the course of the people's life in this thing. And the way that we've seen, uh, in the, the earlier stories of sort of the Midwest or the West coast being influencers over the lives of like the, the, the Hammett or the Chandler, uh, protagonists. I guess what I'm getting at with, 
with kind of making all of those references is like any of the peoples within these stories that we're talking about and Himes as a specific dude, we are dealing with a setting as a major influencer of like the, the story. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It, yeah. yeah, it does. And it, uh, I don't know if this is a good, good place to mention this or not, but it feels like it. Um, the, the way in which Harlem acts as a character and a backdrop feels to me of a similar, uh, kind to, um, the, the HBO Watchmen TV show and Tulsa, um, being the backdrop of, of that. Um, and reading this just solidifies this notion that, you know, the history that we all, that we three learned about our country is completely one-sided, right? Like it's, uh, it's almost reading this and, and, you know, making these connections back to Watchmen where I, I first learned about Tulsa and I feel like a lot of other folks first learned about the, the Tulsa massacre. Um, it, it just feels more and more like we live in a country that has a hidden history, like a, a hidden face. And I'm not, I don't feel like I'm saying anything, you know, new or, or brilliant or anything, but it just strikes me reading this, you know, the, the back to Africa movement is in the, the, the story, but what's really driving the story is the, the MacGuffin of the, the cotton bale, at least so far. Right. Um, much in the same way that, yeah, right. Yeah. So, um, it just seems to me that, uh, you know, in a similar way, Tulsa, if you, if you guys have seen listen, listeners, if you've seen the, the Watchmen HBO TV show, uh, sort of dwells in the background and informs a lot of the plot of that Watchmen TV show. Yeah. One last thing about the Colonel character is, I mean, he and his pals at the back to South movement, they're clearly, involved in the robbery because they have a sign posted about wanted one bale of cotton. Uh, and I just feel like they've also set up shop to sort of make even more money. I mean, they're trying to buy lists of people that they could possibly recruit to their new cause. So maybe they're going to make money hand over fist, which is even more of a description of their greed and like white people's role in this world and in this story. Like, why not take it from them twice? Yeah, I think that's the way it comes across, right? Like, that's that that was my impression, too, is it's 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 doubly dirty the way that the way that they're operating. Do you guys do we want to do any favorite things or I wanted to see if you wanted to talk, wanted to talk real quick about Deke O'Malley, who's the the other major character that we haven't really spoken much about. And probably one of our favorite things. (laughs) He's he's a bad guy. He, he's a he's a pastor, quote unquote, uh, but he's a con man, seemingly of the highest order. He has facilitated this back to Africa movement. Uh, he he gives a good talk. He's got a good barbecue going at the start of the story, and he's got insiders on different things. And he he thinks he's kind of set up, and he is fleecing these people. Um, he's prepared to do so, and. I think that the most interesting thing to me is Coffin and Gravedigger's view of him 
as a trader. Uh, they they understand a man that's got to hustle, but if he's going to hustle like this, he's public enemy number one to them. They want to talk to him in the worst way. Because this is an excess? Like, uh, I wonder if Deke and uh, the colonel have parallels. <laughs> Probably. You know. I mean, Deke... Deke, like compare Deke to the two petty thieves in the story. Oh yeah, uh, that robbed the. We, was it a nun? Or no, no she was. She was just a, was just a lady. yeah, church going lady. That's right. Yeah. And he's got the low boy and uh, I can't remember the other guy's name. All of a sudden, yeah. Hold on, I think I've got it here. Low boy, um, early riser. Oh yeah, there we go. Low boy and early riser. They're these petty thieves that have worked out a system of theft where one of them distracts a church going lady and the other one literally cuts her dress out from behind her in order to steal the money that she has stored in a purse between her legs. And they, we go through this whole drawn out process of how the theft is accomplished. And I would argue that probably Gravedigger and Coffin, they, they don't like these guys, but to them there's, there's work involved in that. And it's small scale, whereas Deke is is a grifter. He's not really working for any of this money, and he's just going to take it and run. And that's to them somehow worse. I, maybe I'm misreading that. I, Man, I appreciate hearing what you guys have to say. I, I think I would I would say that Deke is working just as hard. Like he's got he's got to he's got to put on his you know um, uh, televangelist. <laughs> Persona, go right? to meet and close. Exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I, you know, he's working every angle and he knows, you know, uh, just exactly what kind of game he's playing. I, I think that it's the stakes when you, when you said it was lower stakes, that's where, that's where I, I would agree. But I, I think that Deke is, um, overreaching his bounds and, <laughs> and is stealing way too much from way too many needy people. He Maybe. bought a lot of ribs too. That's that's a big investment. Well, there's that. Yeah, as, as you too well know, the two yeah. meat smokers in the group. Ribs, ribs ain't cheap. <laughs> Unless you go to Kroger and get them on on special, right? What do you think, Luke? Why yeah, is man, deep worse? He's, I mean, well, he's a man of the cloth, right? Or at least that's what he proclaims. <laughs> but the yeah. the way that he uh, interacts with Mabel, it's it is like some of the dirtiest stuff that I've read, man. Uh, you know, there's there's some pretty pointed language at the point in time which they actually where where Deke says, "All right, you know what? I'm gonna go ahead and and, and have sex with this woman." But all of the leading up to that, he like she she's a snake, but he is like uh, the worst. I mean, he's he is such a distasteful figure. Like that's that's my perception of him. Is that he's doing what he does uh, at the at the consequence of his people? You know, there's that that layer of it, and he's just ultimately like betraying loads of folks. He's not just like you know getting what's his in any given night, like cutting a purse. He is trying to across the board get rich. That's kind of my impression. Uh, and so at the point where I finished reading, he kind of disappears into the night. Like he has Mabel who lost her husband and she herself is a little bit suspect with her motivations and the way, 
the way <laughs> that she interacts with him. I love how sexy this story gets pretty quickly. Like there's, there's a lot of sex in this story. If you don't want to read about, uh, you know, uh, some of the titillations that go on with, uh, with, <laughs> with like a little verbal, like foreplay, you know, this, this is a, this is a, a hot, hot around the collar kind of read, but you know, they are going back and forth, but by the time that Iris shows up and throws down, you know, at this point he has taken advantage of, of Mabel multiple times, you know, uh, physically or mentally at the least, you know, he is a dirtbag. Sorry. That's, that's a little bit of a rant, but like, oh. like I, I love how, I love how mean and raunchy, it presents him. It, he's a cult leader almost in those moments where like he has her in his thrall completely. A man died for him and he's so powerful and hypnotic that this guy's wife is now before he's even in the ground, ready to throw down with Deke. Uh, it's, it's weird and bizarre. And like you said, disgusting. It's, it's a hard read for him to wake up from his nightmare, quote unquote, and then sort of force himself on her. Yeah, he's a trashy ass dude. That's, the, that's really the only way to put it. Like he he really doesn't have any boundaries. You know, if you're if you're playing the man of the cloth angle and then you know trying to fleece these people, and we don't know totally how the story's playing out, but we get enough of it that we know this dude is not he is not to be trusted. Mm-hmm. There's just lots of interesting systems in the story as well. I I like the fact that. Deke is upended by these interlopers and then the interlopers themselves are upended by the street level criminals that low boy and early riser during their, their action where they're trying to rob the church going lady, things go wrong. And one of them ends up out in the street and causes the wreck that sort of sets the whole story in motion. I think there's a lot of poetry there. Uh, it's very poignant that they're the ones that kind of spur all this on that all these very heavily greased and ready to go machines are upended by petty crime just sort of happening in the street on its own. Yeah. Uh, uh, on that front, how, so, so this isn't necessarily an outright criticism of the, the writing, but how easy was it for you guys to follow the narrative? That first related is to a that. roller coaster. I, yeah. I, I read it twice. You're there. You're not there. Yeah. It, it, I thought it was jumpy. I read it twice. Um, I, you know, the, like you're supposed to, it's like a magic trick. You're supposed to follow the the cotton bale, right? Right. Yes. And point. Yeah. Ev- everything around the cotton bale is is just the the window dressing. Um, but it's it's good flavor. Uh, but I agree that that scene was so frenetic um, that it was tough to work out exactly who was where and what was happening. But the gist, right? Like John says, is that the the robbery of this church lady has gone awry and she is getting the heck out of there and is, isn't she beating them up? Like she, she, doesn't she like, she, she decks one of them and he goes out in the road and he gets hit by the meat delivery truck. Right. And then her bending over and getting her wallet from the dead guy in the street, uh, and the driver of the armored truck seeing a half naked woman in the street causes him to wreck. So yeah, Everything goes off the rails because of this one robbery on the side of the road. And then the cotton bale ends up 
like he uh, this this homeless guy finds it and is trying to get it onto his his wagon. I almost I wonder like it's it's almost as if Himes is he's 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 got too many too many characters at play, but he's also really messing around with time too. Like the way that time is portrayed in the front end of the story is a is an extra level of confusion. So to me, that was the thing that I really wrestled with, like just making sure that I understood the narrative. And by the time that we really get things with, uh, you know, Gravedigger and Coffin Ed on the hunt, as it were, like things became clearer. You know, once it's essentially them cat and mousing with Deke, the the story is established. But up to that point, really in the first 30 pages, it's a little bit of a funky narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. The the robbery happens. We go to the police precinct and then we're all of a sudden back out on the street in the action. It would have been, I think, cleaner to read it as. Uh, the meeting, the robbery, the the street robbery that causes the accident. Then let's go to police HQ and hear what Gravedigger and Coffin have to say and then see where they go from there. The back and forth, the time jump didn't quite work for me. It is a good criticism, I think, of this early part of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Extra labor, uh, extra layer of labor. It seems like it, and it's it's a fairly short story, as we've talked about already. This is a 150-page, 180-page novel. You know, if you're buying this thing from from Vintage Crime, it is 159 pages long, right? Mm -hmm. It's a quick narrative. It's, and I don't, I I guess this was originally published in, in novel form. We haven't talked about that, but I had, I didn't see anything about serial, Mm -mm. serial formats. This is the way that, that Himes wrote it. It it just seems like that's one extra layer of complication that was a little bit unnecessary. Uh, but you know, it's just us kind of looking back on it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My version is the Dell. 1965 version it's uh, featuring the movie on the front that's cool it's only about 222 pages so quick in and out story one of the reasons we included it in the season as well right right well so do we want to uh wrap up with like any extra like cool things that we want to talk about i don't know where we're standing time wise but i feel like you know, we're, we're kind of spatter, like spattering around or we're kind of a scattershot of the story, but we're kind of capturing it. Let's 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 go around the horn, talk about like maybe one more thing that we all dug and then get out, because the next time we come back around, we'll have the full story. and We'll be able to really <laughs> digest like what what the plot means. Right. Mm-hmm. right. I, I guess I really like the the way in which. um. Coffin Ed and Gravedigger operate. They have their they operate within the system, but outside the confines of the system at the same time. And th- the way that that is presented, that dynamic between them uh, as individuals and between them as partners and other other characters that they interact with um, is is presented. I, I just think that you know they seem even though this is the only book um, featuring them that I've read, they seem fully realized they're, they're, they're good characters. 
Um, you know where they're coming from. They, uh, their um, motivation is pretty clear. And like, you know, maybe it's because I'm looking at this with my, you know, <laughs> 40 year old eyes. And I've, I've seen lots of other uh, media at this point in my life. Like I, I get these characters at least in terms of, um, you know, them being outsider detectives having to juggle, you know, uh, their informants and their relationships within the precinct and all of these other things. So I, I just dig their dynamic a lot. They are very cool. Uh, you damn right. The way they deal with one another <laughs> and the, their partnership is very interesting. If I was going to pick something that stood out to me, a character maybe that stood out to me, I might go with Iris, actually, Deke's girlfriend in the story. Uh, I don't like her as I, as much as I like Coffin and, and Gravedigger, but I do find her to be a fascinating mover of the plot thus far. Uh, she has a couple of different appearances on the stage. Well, the first one is after the robbery when the two detectives show up to kind of lean on her and try and figure out where Deke is at. They have a very telling interaction with her. And I think it's, is it Coffin that about strangles her to death? Yeah, man. Yeah. He's off the chain. Uh, he's off the chain. He's, he, he's pockmarked and scarred from an acid attack. He's very angry. And she says something that sets him off and he reaches across and throttles her. And just about a second before he kills her, he's pulled off by his partner and there's, I thought the best interaction of this whole thing was when she punches him straight in the nose and says, now we're even, because they're trying to get her to call it quits, even though they've basically broken into her home without a warrant and then almost committed manslaughter or murdered her. And uh, she she's tough as nails in those instances. And then she's kept under surveillance. And she has this really, I think, bizarre interaction with the white detective that is placed <laughs> to watch her and keep her there um she calls him ugly and then ends up cutting holes in a paper bag to put over his head so they can have sex like it's all pretend of course because she's just trying to get away but the way this guy is lured in to turn a phrase i guess to wanting her because he hates her in the in the beginning of their interaction like he's just mad at her i think himes is accidentally revealing some things that he feels about about women and maybe even particular black women. I don't know. I've read some of these articles online that talk about he had a lot of feelings on pretensions within the black community and some of the, I guess, I don't know if racism is the right word, but the problems that can happen between African American people of different color, I guess. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think that, I think that Iris has, has instances of that, has a lot to say about that. Yep. And yep. when she busts out of there and goes on her war path to go find Deke, I mean, she's hell hath no fury, like a woman scorned. Like she's just, she's ready to go and she's going to find him and get him. Uh, I thought she was a fascinating character to watch as she kind of marches through the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so sort of dovetailing on that, John, like my favorite things. Well, maybe I shouldn't say this. Like, not necessarily my favorite things, but I think the most interesting things to me are the instances of, uh, I guess, uh, misogynism. Like, <laughs> so they're not my favorite things, but I think one of the, some of the most interesting 
instances in the writing are just the way that uh, Himes refers to the interactions between men and women within his stories uh, or within this story specifically relating to the white detective. I think it's kind of interesting. He's like, she's cutting out a mask, like a hood, if you will, for this, this white man who's infuriated and just wants to ultimately rape the, the black woman you know, this hood for, for, for him to don. I think there's like layers of intentionality there that, that, that Himes was writing, but the, the ways that just both white and black men refer to the women within the story is, is really fascinating to me. And you're, you're totally right, John, like there's distinctions between how black people are in the stories that I think is really, really interesting. Uh, you know, the degree to which like, is there a, a mixing of, of, of racial, racial blood? Is there, you know, what's, what's the term when, uh, is it mestizo? It's not mestizo. Uh, we've turned up, we, we've used this term before. I can't remember exactly, but we, we did this, you is- know, when, when yeah. in the Solomon Kane story where it's moon of skulls, yeah, exactly right? right? Yeah. Uh, but when we have, so, so, uh, let's get it right. Iris is our mixed ancestry woman within the story. And she is the femme fatale, right? Like that's what's established. Mabel is, uh, <laughs> I mean, she's, She's a whole bag of neuroses, which mm-hmm. is, you know, its own thing to unpack the way that she's presented. Uh, but she is the uh, unapologetic, uh, domestic, subservient woman in the story, right? And she is uh, adhering to that sort of uh, African uh, back on the boat mission that, that Deke is projecting, right? And her husband died during the the attack on the the rally, right? Right. Yeah. And uh, Iris is off the chain, but she's kind of like the in between with with the the overall sort of structure of rate racial like the the, <laughs> the racial continuum within the story. There's a lot to unpack there. I, I don't want to get any further than saying I find that really fascinating the way that those two women specifically are sort of juxtaposed with one another. One of them ends up dead. And then the other one, I, we don't know what's going to happen with her. Presumably she's laying on the ground, banged on the head, and and uh, uh, <laughs> Preacher Man is out on the streets back into Harlem just doing like back on the lamb. That's kind of the way that it's presented. Uh, I'm really excited to see how he gets reckoned with, but I really want to see what happens with, with Iris, who is seemingly a, a, a bad person in a lot of ways, but ultimately I want to see what happens. Is she going to get comeuppance or is she going to, you know, have some sort of, <laughs> is she going to learn a lesson? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? I think it's interesting. Like, to consider 
the the lives of authors and how those those you know biographies affect their works and uh himes evidently married a white lady named uh, leslie packard um he described her according to wikipedia as irish english with blue gray eyes and very good looking and they moved uh to to france together so she evidently was a uh um, a reporter who was going to interview him and they hit it off after uh, okay. Himes had separated from his, his first wife. So, uh, you know, who knows, who knows what, uh, Himes's personal views on things actually were, but, uh, it is interesting to contemplate that in light of, of his, his biography. Well, if you, I was reading through, there's a, a book that came out and it was featured on an NPR article I read through. It's a new Chester Himes biography. Uh, and it talks about some of the feelings on this subject that he had. And there's a description of he, he uh, his mom and his feelings towards her. Uh, his mom was college educated and was considered a light skinned woman. Uh, she was quote-unquote color struck and tried to build her sons up by telling them you mustn't think of yourself as quote-unquote colored you both have white blood fine white blood in your veins uh, in his novels himes would later lash out at the pretensions and black-on-black racism of middle-class african-americans like his mother so i think he had he had a lot of feelings on the subject yeah. i don't know if we're getting into all of them just in this one story but I wonder how much this pops up in his fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the 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 consequences of 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 racial, I guess, mixing or what's the right word is miscegenation. Like, is that the is that the? I don't know uh, if that's the right word to use. Anymore, yeah, but I don't I, think no, that's no, no, no. But I mean, like, but but that that sort of like, I think that that is the the topic that that Himes is tapping into that is. I guess to tie it back to our overall sort of narrative of our, our story, you know, it, it ties into that, that sword and sorcery, uh, trajectory, right? Like this is a thing that we've wrestled with all the way back to Solomon Kane, all the way back to some of the classic Howard stories, like these issues of racial differences, but yet mixing, are hardwired <laughs> into what Himes is wrestling with here too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's interesting. I don't want to say it's cool. That's a, that was almost what I was about to say. I think it's I think it's very interesting. I think it is a uh, part of what makes Himes kind of a next level and adding extra complicating factors onto his stories and different than the other stuff we've talked about over the season. Mm-hmm. And I think it's cool to see this from from Himes's perspective because we've talked about it from Howard's perspective, and in particular in Moon of Skulls, like the the um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not like erotification, but like uh, how the the black main character, the woman in that story, is portrayed as mysterious and sultry and sexy and and just tempting Solomon Kane out of his Puritan ways, right? Um, uh-huh. versus how Himes is is presenting it in in his story, uh, just just super super interesting to compare the two. 
You were right about oh. mis- you were right about miscegenation. That is what it means. But it, evidently, in the Wikipedia article, it says that word is usually considered pejorative. Well, it is right because it's used in a in a, uh, a racial context, yeah. right? Like, like I'm thinking of a. <laughs> it's used in. I, I laugh there because I'm thinking about the ridiculousness of Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Like that's how it's. <laughs> that's how. That's how the the KKK dudes. Like they use that term in uh, like when Pappy O'Daniel ends up on the stage ultimately and he's trying to like uh, paint the picture of, uh, you know, the, the Soggy Bottom Boys. They, like they use those terms like miscegenationist. Like that's a like a dismissive or pejorative term that they're throwing out there that's kind of showing their ass. Right. That's uh, right. And those boys are bona fide. <laughs> Side note: Showing your ass has a has a whole other meaning within this story. I think I think that's intentional too. Like the way of the, it, it seemed very over the top. The way that Himes talked about like cutting out the the back end of a, of a woman's skirt to expose uh, a hip purse. The whole the whole like story. It's it's almost like an overwrought like knock knock joke to get to like, like showing your ass. I think that mm-hmm. there's, right. there's something there too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey lady, it's your ass. Uh, that made me laugh. Really yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> that guy. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. We'll see where we get to. I mean, we've got half another story to get through. We've got half the novel. Uh, what's in that bell of cotton guys? $87,000. Yeah. Oh, the big monies. Yeah, where is it? We got to find it. That's the back half it's of the cur- story. It's been sold for thirty to the junk dealer. Oh, that's right, Josh. Yeah. I am most concerned with knowing what the hell is up with like a uh, white boy Calhoun, like uh, the, the 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 colonel or whatever his name is, <laughs> Papio like, Daniel. <laughs> uh, Papio Daniel. Like, who is this? Who is this white bread dude? This <laughs> that's like. What does he know? That's what I want to know mm. is how he might connect with with uh, with the uh, the preacher man. Like that's those are the two like that's the most immediate connections. And I want to see like uh, I want to see Coffin Ed just just headbutt somebody. I want to see. I, I don't know if he ever goes off the chain. I have to think that he's going to get reined in a little bit. But I want to see him like legitimately hurt somebody. Throw <laughs> throw a man twenty feet in the air single handedly. <laughs> yeah. Until we read that next portion of the story, though, where can the people find us, Josh? Uh, they can uh, look us up on the web. We're the Chromecast.blogspot.com. We're on all the requisite social medias at the Chromecast. Uh, you can call us and leave us a voicemail. We'd love that. 859 429 Chrom or send us an email, the Chromecast at gmail.com. We're barreling towards the end. Share with us any of your favorite hard-boiled moments. If you've read Cotton Comes to Harlem, let us know what you think. Uh, We hope that everybody's out there kind of reading along with us. That's always one of our goals. Yeah. Yep. And until then, fire us a little bit further down the road.
down south We sweat and strain We were the prisoners of cotton But when cotton come to Harlem 